You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Would you pray with us as we go to God's Word? Our Heavenly Father, we recognize you as the sovereign Lord of all creation. We pray, hallowed be your name. Help your name, who you are, to be seen as holy as you truly are in our eyes right now. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts an allegiance to your kingdom, that we would say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we have heard your word, we have heard you speak. And I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts in these moments to align them with you and what you would have, would have us do in your life, in our lives. Lord, we want to seek you now as, as you instruct us in your word. Through your Holy Spirit, apply these things to our hearts. I pray that you would make it clear how we are to walk because of them. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I believe that the events that have consumed our news in the past weeks and months, if they've shown us nothing else, I believe they've shown us that the world in which we live is in desperate need of the God whom we serve. Our world needs the God of hope and resurrection life to show us how to face sickness and death. Our world needs the God who breathes life into every person to show us the value of every person who's created in His image from the unborn to the oldest adult. In every color and socioeconomic condition, God has placed value upon every person. Our world needs the the God of ultimate justice to, to show us how to seek Him for that justice through the gospel of justification by faith alone. Our world needs the God of peace to rule in our troubled hearts. And yet, our world proves time and time again to reject the true God, to reject His way, to reject His solutions, and to go after false gods that promise more immediate gratification of the flesh. And if there was ever a time when God's people and God's ways were held in a position of favor in our society, I believe that time is quickly ending. Most researchers would agree that America is becoming what is called a a post-Christian society. It's a society in which Christians once held a dominant voice in the culture. But now they find themselves on the margins. If we want to look at other societies who have gone this way, we could look at Canada, we could look at uh, Europe. And so, uh, John Dickerson, in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession, he cites six trends that point to a post-Christian culture. I'm not sure if he uses those words post-Christian at all, but, but he calls it an evangelical recession. It's what other researchers would call a post-Christian culture. And, and 
before I cite these trends, I, I just want to be clear. Uh, I'm stating these as observations. These are observations that have been made in order to show the reality of our society. So I, I'm, first of all, not suggesting that we need to fight tooth and nail to regain ground in these areas. I'm not suggesting that, that Jesus has stopped building his church and all is hopeless. I'm not suggesting that these trends are the exact situation in which every individual church or even our church finds themselves specifically. I, I just want to have a, an accurate view of the role that traditional Bible-believing Christianity plays in American society so that, that we can see more clearly the world in which we live. And so six trends that point to a post-Christian culture uh, from this book, The Great Evangelical Recession. First is that Bible-believing Christians are a smaller movement than many have thought. Bible-believing, sincere Christians make up about one in ten Americans versus the former assumptions that we're one in three or one in two. So that's 10%. Uh, secondly, the church is losing many of our own young people. So three different important studies have shown that two out of three young people raised in evangelical churches walk away from the faith between ages 18 and 29. Uh, third, uh, giving to churches, giving to Christian ministries, giving to missions is declining among those younger generations. So 68% of giving comes from the oldest two generations, which is going to then create a massive challenge to funding mission efforts as the older generations pass on. Uh, fourth, uh, Bible-believing Christians hold a declining percentage in the population due to high population growth and low conversion growth. So in order to maintain the same percentage of the population that Bible-believing Christians make up now, we would need to see about 400,000 new converts per year nationally. However, 75% of church growth that's happening right now is coming from church transfer. So per, a person leaving one church and going to another church. And, and that kind of church growth isn't always bad. I'm not saying that. Uh, but, but it is saying that, that very little church growth is happening because people are coming to Jesus. Uh, fifth, uh, hostility from the outside of the church is on the rise. Where at one time the culture just didn't care about Christian beliefs, now culture is becoming increasingly hostile to God and to His Word, especially in the cultural engines of higher education and mainstream media and the government. And then last but not least, an internal issue. Uh, when we most need each other, the church allows non-central issues to divide. And in the midst of a changing culture, the church often divides over how to respond to those changes. All right, now, that's the picture. What does it actually mean for us? Well, it does not mean that our primary goal all of a sudden needs to shift to change the culture, to regain our cultural status. Our primary goal is to preach the gospel so that people through faith, can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And that's going to have an effect on the culture, for sure, but our primary goal, our focus, is a faithfulness to the gospel and to the kingdom of which the gospel makes us a part. Like I said before, this post-Christian culture does not mean that Jesus has stopped building His church. 
but it does mean that we need to be keenly aware that we are, as we studied in 1 Peter last year, we are elect exiles in a hostile world. And that means that we need to set our expectations accordingly. We need to be awake and ready to face the changing society with conviction and boldness that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we need to understand as Paul equipped the new believers in Acts chapter 14, that through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to live with hope that through the ultimate power of our Savior King, we will enter His kingdom that will never end. And so the question really is, uh, how do we live with an undivided allegiance to the indestructible kingdom of God? That's the question and the goal that we are pursuing this summer as we study the book of Daniel. You can open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this entire summer. That, and our goal is that we as believers would live with an undivided allegiance to the indestructible kingdom of God. That's really where Daniel and his friends found themselves as they were carried off into exile into the nation of Babylon. Uh, Babylon was the ultimate godless nation. Uh, the nation that would then become the code word for every godless nation who came after it. It was a nation that was hostile to the ways of God, and that, yet it was used by God to draw His people back to Himself. And I believe that that's what God wants to do in us, and, and he, what He wants to do through us, as we see our nation revealed as a type of Babylon before our eyes. He wants us to know that in any place our faith can thrive because our God is ultimate. Whether we live in a communist nation like China or a post-Christian America, we can live with undivided allegiance to the indestructible kingdom of God. Today in Daniel chapter 1, we're going to see that our undivided allegiance needs to start with an unshakable conviction. That's our big idea for today. It's up on the screen for you. Allow the ultimate king to develop unshakable conviction in your heart. Allow the ultimate king to develop unshakable conviction in your heart. And see, if we're going to thrive as believers in a post-Christian, anti-God culture, we need to allow the ultimate king to develop unshakable conviction in our hearts. So your Bibles are open to Daniel chapter 1. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link in the video and you can jump over to YouVersion. All of the sermon notes are there. Uh, but we just want you to see God's Word for yourself, right? And so in Daniel chapter 1, we, we meet Daniel who is, is a prophet of God who lived in a hostile land of Babylon with an undivided allegiance to God. He, he was writing to the citizens of Judah who were still in exile at the time of his writing. And he was writing so that they would know that God is the one who still had a plan for them. God is the ultimate king. God had brought them into exile and God was going to preserve them through exile as godless nations oppressed them. The book is called Daniel because Daniel wrote it. But I want to be so clear. Uh, the book of Daniel is not ultimately about Daniel. Like you might have been taught in some Sunday school class as a kid. See, the book of Daniel is ultimately about Daniel's God. It's about a God who is the ancient of days, like we sang about. That's going to be our theme song for this year, or for this summer. A God who 
who has an indestructible kingdom. A God who sovereignly develops conviction in the heart of His people so that they can endure in the land of exile. And if you're going to develop a conviction toward God, it has to be a work of God in your heart. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 1. Today we're going to look at five ways God develops our conviction. Five ways that God develops our conviction. And the first is this, He delivers the consequences of sin. He delivers the consequences of sin. Okay, look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay, so maybe you're sitting there on your couch and you're like, wait, 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 what did we just read? Like, like, like what were all those names? And it just sounded like some foreign language. Like, blah, 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 blah. So I want to do a quick recap of the biblical story up to this point. And if you watched our Tuesday devotional or you read the reading plan this week, uh, hopefully this is like just refreshing your memory on that and making this even more familiar to you. We, we need to be familiar with the biblical story. So I'm going to pick things up near the beginning in Genesis chapter 11. And this is a, a few hundred years after God wiped out the entire population of the earth with a, a great flood as a consequence for sin. And he wiped out everyone except for the family of Noah. Noah's family was saved through the ark. And, and as Noah's family began to repopulate the earth, they, they passed their sin nature down from generation to generation and things got increasingly wicked. And that culminated with a, the whole population gathering on the plain of Shinar. So you heard that in, in, in Daniel chapter 1 there. Shinar is, is to the uh, far uh, east of this map. Uh, it, it's, it's where the, the people uh, in Genesis chapter 11 were congregating. Uh, and it was the place where humanity said, we are not going to fill the earth like God commanded us to do. Instead, we are going to become our own gods. We're going to stay right here. We're going to build a name for ourselves, and we're going to build a tower right into heaven. And so God said, oh, no, you won't. And he, he confused their languages. He scattered them over the whole face of the earth. And that place on the plain of Shinar was then called Babel. And, and that became the ancient foundations of an empire that would later be called Babylon. And it was out of this same general location that God called a man named Abram. And he said, go to the land that I will show you. And, and that's going to become the land of Israel. It's over on the west side of the map. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to give you offspring. And I'm going to make them many. And through you, I'm going to make a great nation through which all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so God created the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he created the nation of Israel. Now, through a series of events, God allowed this family to become refugees in the land of Egypt. They, they were away from the land of promise, and, and over the next 400 years, they became a great nation. And so the Egyptians said, uh, we need to control these people, and so we're going to enslave them. And after 400 years in the land of Egypt, God said, you know what, it's time. And he delivered them out. 
and he made a covenant with them, and he made them his people. And he gave them a law. And they then promptly broke that law. And so he gave them the consequence of wandering for 40 years in the desert until that generation which he had delivered died out. And so on the brink of the promised land, he, he restated the law in the book of Deuteronomy. So Charlie was preaching out of Deuteronomy last week, and he explained this last week. And, and as they entered into the promised land, he said, if you follow me as the only true God, I will bless you in this land. And, and if you reject me and you reject my ways, I'm going to curse you and you're going to be carried off into a foreign land. And so God establishes them in the land and they, they continue being unfaithful to him, but, but he is so, so patient. And he gives many other little consequences along the way, but he also shows a ton of mercy. Fast forward to the time of the kings. God repeats the same promise to his chosen servant, King David, and then to David's son, Solomon. If you, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. But Solomon rejects God, and he, he marries a bunch of women who worship other gods, and so he starts worshiping their foreign gods too. Gotta, gotta appease your wives. And so, therefore, uh, God delivers on his consequence that he had promised and he divides the nation in two. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now Israel, which is the northern kingdom, was always wicked. Judah was only usually wicked with a few exceptions. And the most wicked kingdom in Judah, remember Judah was mentioned in Daniel chapter 1 as well. The most wicked kingdom in Ju king in Judah was Manasseh. And he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He starts worshiping false gods not only out on the high places, but actually in the temple of the only true God. And he actually sacrifices his own son to those false gods. And so God promises that he's going to deliver the full measure of the consequences that he had promised all the way back in Deuteronomy. Exile is coming. It cannot be stopped. But it doesn't all come right away. So Manasseh's son Ammon is made king, and he's evil, but, but then he's killed by his servants, and his eight-year-old son Josiah is made king in his place. And it's during Josiah's reign that the law was rediscovered, and the worship of God was restored in Israel. And it's toward the end of Josiah's reign, this is really important, that Daniel and his friends were born. But the consequence promised to Manasseh was still coming upon Judah. And so Josiah, he dies in battle against Necho, who was the pharaoh of Egypt at that time. And the people of Israel try to put Josiah's second-born son, Jehoahaz, on the throne. He's wicked, but the people think, well, he's probably better than his older brother. And yet Necho promptly removes Jehoahaz, and he puts Josiah's firstborn son in his place to run his puppet government. And his name is Jehoiakim. Again, we read about him in Daniel chapter 1. Now Jehoiakim was not on the throne for very long at all under, uh, as the puppet governor of, of Necho, but Nebuchadnezzar then, the king of Babylon, defeated Assyria and Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And that effectively ended the dominance of Egypt and Babylon took over rule in Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar made Jehoiakim his slave, and he took three deportations of Israelites from Judah 
to Babylon over that long line that you saw on the map earlier. Okay, so that's the history. Uh, hopefully now maybe those names and those places make a little bit more sense. Let's read it again. Uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord is making good on his promise to punish Israel for their sin. See, Israel had rejected God. They, they had turned his temple into a showcase for other demonic gods. And so the Lord says, okay, you want the result of that? I'm going to deliver you over into the hand of those foreign gods. Like if you want to serve them, you're going to experience the full evil of their authority. And for a time, Israel would, would see the destructive consequences of their sin. And even though it would look like God, God was defeated, and even though some of the current generation had turned back to God and, and they, they had come to know His ways, God still had to follow through on His promise to deliver His people into exile. You see, without following through on that consequence, He would not develop conviction in their hearts. It's like when parents discipline their kids. Or kids, if you're watching, uh, when you receive discipline, right? Like if I, us parents said, uh, okay, come here or now, or you're going to go sit in timeout. And, and the kid doesn't come. And so we say, no, no, I mean it. Don't make me count to three. And so they still don't come. And so we say, okay, one, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and fifteen sixteenths. Are the, is the kid developing the conviction that the parent is ultimately in charge or that they are ultimately in charge? They're developing a conviction that they are ultimately in charge, right? See, God must deliver on the consequences of sin or else He would not be the ultimate king. He would not be the good king. He would not be the just king who is developing conviction in the hearts of his people. And yet, God would take this a step further in showing them the consequences of sin. See, the, the story doesn't end with Israel in exile. After the time of Daniel, God would bring them out of exile and he would bring them back into their own land, but they would still be ruled by foreign governments. They would be in exile in their own land. But it's there that he would have mercy on them. So much mercy that he would send his only son, born of the line of David, born to live a sinless life, and God the Father would place upon his son the ultimate consequence of sin, death and separation. He would take on the consequence of sin for his people. And he would rise again so that through faith in him they could be counted righteous and their sin would be washed clean and their relationship with God would be restored and the power of the law would be broken. And that same offer is extended to us, a people of a far off nation from Israel. That same offer is extended to us here today in this nation. 
You see, ultimately, God delivered the full consequence of our sin upon Jesus. He did it so that we could live with an unshakable conviction in the ultimate King. Is that your conviction? Is that the essence of your faith and the engine of your faith that that Jesus, the Savior and Lord, has died for you and risen again and demands your allegiance? God develops an unshakable conviction, deep-rooted faith and trust in our hearts by delivering the consequences of sin upon His people directly at times, but then upon Jesus ultimately. And so let me ask you this, uh, when you experience the consequences of sin in your life, does it convince you to move toward God or away from Him? And when you find yourself enduring the evils of society and life in a fallen world, does it make you rush toward the gods of society who ultimately perpetuate those evils? Or toward the true God? And when you hear that Jesus endured the consequence of sin on your behalf by dying on a cross in your place, does it make you want to continue on in that sin? Or does it convict you to turn from your sin and to trust in Him? I pray that you would experience conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning that would turn your heart toward Jesus Christ. See, when we see God deliver on the consequences of sin, it develops an unshakable conviction in our hearts. That's what God is doing for Israel, and that's what God was doing especially in the lives of the youth that we read about next. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Here we see a second way that God develops conviction in our hearts. He places us in an anti-God world. Now this may seem backwards to us, but but living in an anti-God world is actually a tool that God uses to move our hearts toward conviction. That's what he was doing in the the nation of Israel. He was moving them toward belief that he is the only God. You see, the devil, the enemy, loves subtlety. He loves to take truth and then twist it ever so slightly, not in a way that we would ever notice, and then do that again and again and again until the product is something that has drifted far from the truth of God. But when we live in an anti-God world, the choices of conviction become all the more clear. See, when a government like Iran says, you're not allowed to lead a house church or you're going to be jailed for five years, like they did to four pastors this past week, 
you know where you have to take a stand, right? And so here's how it was working for Daniel and his friends. Historically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar had spent all of his energy and resources on defeating the Assyrian and Egyptian armies. And so after he finally controlled the kingdom, he had a hard time subduing all of the people of the vast empire that he had acquired. And so his plan is kind of sneaky. He thinks to himself, I'll I'll take the brightest of the young people. I'm going to take their nobles. I'm going to take their rulers. And I'm going to take them out to my palace in Babylon. And I'm going to wine them and dine them with the best food. And I'm going to give them the best education. And they're going to become like putty in my hands. And then I'm going to set them loose to lead their own people in my ways. Get this. The king is literally brainwashing the most elite youth of Judah to lead them away from Yahweh so that they'll follow him and the Babylonian gods. We can see this so clearly in the way that he changed their names. Uh, So the name Daniel means God is judge or God has judged. And the chief of the officials, Ashpenaz, changes Daniel's name to Belteshazzar, which means wife of Bel, protect the king, referring to one of the main Babylonian gods, Bel. Hananiah means Yahweh, the Lord, has been gracious to me. And so he changed that to Shadrach, meaning the command of Aku, who is the Babylonian moon god, Aku. Mishael means who is what God is. Kind of like we would sometimes say, like, there's no one like our God. And they changed it to Meshach, uh, who is what Aku is. Referring again to that moon god. Azariah means Yahweh helps. And so they changed it to Abednego, servant of Nebo, who was the son of the god Bel. You see what they're doing? The the, the plan is to remove their association with the God of Israel, remove their identity in Yahweh, and then recreate their identity with the Babylonian gods. Does that sound familiar? Do you you remember earlier one of the points that I made about the indicators of a post-Christian society? That that two-thirds of young people are leaving the church. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because the enemy works hard to shape each generation into its, his mold. And that's why what Charlie preached last week was so important, uh, that we must model a love for God for our kids. We must teach God's ways to the next generation. We must talk about his ways all the time. We even write them all over our house. Because listen, if we don't, there is a world that will write the names of their own gods on our kids' hearts. They will drip a godless way of thinking in through their media and literature and peer pressure. And listen, I'm not suggesting at all that we isolate our youths from those things. Don't even hear me advocating like a certain educational choice or, or specifics on how to do this. Like if, you're, if your kids are, are in public school or private school or home school, uh, all of us, no matter what choice we make on that, all of us need to be helping our kids process what they're hearing and learning in light of God's truth. How is history connected to God? God is the God of history. All of history is His story. How is science connected to God? God is the one who created order in all things. 
We need to help them draw those lines. And there are many creative and faithful ways to do that, but the bottom line is we must disciple the next generation to develop a conviction regarding Christ that will endure the attempted indoctrination of our world. You see, especially in our youth, we're, we're kind of like Plato. We're, we're, we're very moldable. And, and as, our, as we grow older, our, our convictions tend to solidify. But, but the world is trying to, to squeeze us. They're, they're trying to squeeze us into their mold. And this is true for us adults too, right? It's not just youth that have this problem. But the world is trying to shape us uh, into what they want us to be. And if we haven't developed our convictions in Christ, we will conform to the world's way of thinking. But if we have solidified our our convictions in Christ, we've gotten to be that rock-hard piece of Play-Doh, we're not going to be able to fit into their mold. We won't give in. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus... And when we experience the mercy of God rescuing us and reaching into the kingdom of darkness to pull us out, He changes our lives. And He calls us to live for Him. There is no rescue without Him changing us. He doesn't rescue us out of the bondage of sin so that we can go and return to it as our master. So that we can go and drink from that cesspool. He says, do not be conformed. Do not let the world press you into its mold. And so are there any ways that you have been conformed in your thinking to the thinking of this world? Maybe it's in your definition of success. Maybe it's in your views on sexuality. Maybe it's in your perspectives on racial identity. Maybe it's in your perspectives on how someone can get to God. Is there, is there only one way to God or many ways to God? I, I want to challenge you Commit to renewing your mind in God's Word so that you will be transformed from the pattern of this world and conformed into the image of God, Christ. God has left us in an increasingly hostile world to show the goodness and perfection of His will. And we must hold fast to it with conviction. Now here's the good news. Ultimately, God doesn't leave us there alone. He's with us in that. And that's the good news of Jesus, that, that God entered into a hostile world. He came into exile for us, and He said that He would remain with us until the very end of the age so that we could follow Him out of exile and into eternity. Jesus demonstrated the wholehearted conviction that He calls us to in an anti-God world by going to a cross and dying. And through His death and resurrection, we can endure in that very same world. So Daniel and his friends are are now in a hot predicament. Like imagine being a teenager, invited into the palace of the king, the king who just conquered your land. You are thousands of miles from home. 
separated from your parents if they're even still alive, in a place where everything is acting against your faith in God. Like teenagers, students, you think public school is hard? Uh, Public school ain't got nothing on what these guys are going through. And so, are their convictions strong enough to hold in that place? Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the, king, the, the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Here's the third way that God develops our convictions. Uh, He tests our controlling fears. He tests our controlling fears. So I find this absolutely amazing. Uh, Out of all of the pagan literature that Daniel is being required to read, and in the midst of his name being changed to reflect a Babylonian God, and in the midst of having to learn the language of his conquerors, uh, Daniel doesn't throw a flag at any one of those things. He doesn't whine about his rights. He doesn't demand that he be exempt. The place where Daniel draws the line is at eating the king's food. Why is that? Why did he draw the line there and not on those other things? And I believe the reason is this. See, you can teach me things about your culture, but I can just evaluate them in light of God's truth. And you can change my name, but you can't change my identity and who God is. And you can teach me a new language, but I can just turn that language on you and speak of the one true God of Israel. But if you feed me your food, your food that was sacrificed to your idols, your food that was used to worship your God, that violates the clear commands of my God. You see, Daniel knew the one true God. He knew God's law. Remember I said he was probably born under the reign of Josiah, which means that his parents would have lived through Josiah's reforms where where Josiah found the law and he read it to the people and he reinstituted the Passover meal. And I don't think that it takes too much imagination or guessing to assume that Daniel's parents would have taught him that law and would have taught him the observance of Passover. They would have taught Daniel how God delivered his people out of Egypt and how he showed how all of the gods of Egypt were powerless against him. And they they would have taught him the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they would have taught him the blessings and the curses that God had promised to his people. And so even as a youth, Daniel had learned to fear God. And so he refuses to eat this meat that the king had offered to him. But we see a competing fear in Ashpenaz, the the chief of the king's eunuchs. 
He apparently likes Daniel. Uh, God has given Daniel favor in his sight. And so he says to Daniel, he's like, dude, would you just eat the meat already? Like, like I'm afraid you're going to start looking pretty scrawny and the king is going to blame me and he's going to kill me. It's my head that's on the line. The Bible calls that the fear of man. He, he feared Nebuchadnezzar. Now, kind of understandably so, uh, he was Babylonian, remember, so he, he didn't know Yahweh. But, but he was about to see what Yahweh could do. Because Daniel comes up with a plan. He says, feed us vegetables for 10 days and then, and then do a weigh-in. And if we've lost weight, uh, deal with us accordingly. That means, by the way, put us to death. Like Daniel knows he's sticking his neck out there, right? And, and if we've not lost weight, then, then you know that God is for us. You see, Daniel may have feared the king. We, we don't know what fear was going on in his heart as he was saying this. But what we do know is that he feared God more. Conviction is formed at the crossroads of competing fears. So this week we did a, a fire drill with the kids at our house. And uh, one of our plans is that if the fire is downstairs and we're upstairs, uh, we're going to go out our balcony window onto the roof of our sunroom and wait there. It's only one story. We should be able to get down from there pretty easily. Uh, but here's the thing. If the fire's too bad, uh, Daddy is going to jump down off the roof first and then help everyone else off. And so the question is, um, do I fear jumping off a one-story roof? I feared a little more than I did when I was 25. But, but do I fear getting burned in a blazing hot fire more? Yes, absolutely. And so will I gladly jump off the roof to help my family get away from the fire? 100%. I'm there. See, conviction is formed at the crossroads of competing fears. What fear controls your life? Is it the fear of God? Or the fear of man? Or maybe it's the fear of death? The fear of losing something? God develops our conviction by testing our controlling fears. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In His humanity, He's, he's crying out to God. He says, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The, the fear of the Lord, the, the perfect recognition that God the Father is ultimate and would ultimately vindicate Him, is what drove Jesus beyond the fear of death, beyond the fear of separation from God, to endure the cross. And His death and His resurrection conquered the power of every other fear in our lives. The, the power of sin and death is removed and because the fear of man and the fear of death has been broken, the righteous fear of God can now control us as believers. The fear of God was, was certainly controlling Daniel. In this test, Daniel really had his neck out there. And so, so do you think that God was going to pull through? Uh, kids, tell your parents if you think God is going to rescue Daniel in this story. Look at verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter. And tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. The fourth way God develops our conviction is He upholds our steps of faith. God pulls through. 
God pulls through. Daniel and his friends stepped out in faith. They stepped out in conviction based on what he saw in God's word. And God took care of them. Not, not only did they not look worse than the other youths, they looked better. They looked healthier. Now this is not in the Bible so that you can start going on the Daniel diet plan. Vegetables only. Uh, this is not in the Bible so that you can convince your kids to eat their vegetables. Don't read your Bible like that. The, the point is that God upholds the steps of the faithful. See, so many people say, uh, well, I couldn't possibly do what God says I need to do because that will destroy my life. Maybe someone watching is saying, I, I can't stay in my marriage. My spouse is never going to change. I'm destined for a life of misery. If I stay with them, I'm leaving tomorrow. Stay faithful. Move toward your spouse in self-sacrificing, never giving up love. God upholds our steps of faith. Maybe someone is saying, I, I couldn't possibly go against my boss who's asking me to do something illegal. I'd lose my job, and there, then where would I be? How would I protect my family? Stay faithful. You might lose your job, but God might have another one for you, or He might have another way of providing for you. God upholds our steps of faith. Maybe someone is saying, uh, I couldn't possibly share the gospel at my school. Everyone would make fun of me. I'd be on the outside. Stay faithful. God might just spark a revival at your school. Or He might comfort you in other ways that you can't imagine. God upholds our steps of faith. Maybe someone's saying, I, I couldn't possibly speak out against the prejudice that I heard my neighbors expressing the other day. It's going to just make them turn on me. Stay faithful. You may just help someone else see their need for Jesus. God upholds our steps of faith. How have you seen God uphold your steps of faith in the past? Allow that to develop conviction in the future. Take time as a regular part of your prayer routine to thank God, to praise Him for the ways that you've seen Him uphold you, for the ways that He's proven the superiority of His character and way to you. And if you do that, you're going to develop a rock-solid conviction for the future. I wonder what steps of faith God wants you to take this week based upon the knowledge of His faithfulness to you in the past. I'm praying that you have the wisdom to discern them, to discern His good and acceptable and perfect will in your life. See, what we see in Daniel's life and throughout the rest of this book is an ever-increasing wisdom to live in a godless world with unshakable conviction. What we read in verses 17 to 21 form a summary statement over the ways that God worked in Daniel and his friends' lives. Uh, look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, that's the end of the three years that they were being educated, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
How does God develop unshakable conviction in his people? Uh, He delivers the consequences of sin. He places us in an anti-God world. He tests our controlling fears. He upholds our steps of faith. And then last but not least, he establishes us in his wisdom. See, really God has been doing this all along in, his, in this story. And like I said before, this is kind of a summary statement over the ways that God works in the lives of these four men. God that gave them learning and skill in literature and skill in wisdom. He, he gave them skill in their studies, their academic studies. The, these guys graduated at the top of their class in the most secular, anti-God high school or university in the world at the time. And these kids were going to need a lot of wisdom in order to live with conviction in Babylon. Like eating the food sacrificed to idols is just the first of many hard, life-on-the-line judgment calls that they were going to need to make. There there were many times in their lives where they would need to to know when to hold on to a conviction and when God was going to give them freedom of conscience. And this is so important. Daniel didn't fight against everything that the king commanded. He, he, He... only stood up against what clearly violated God's law and would ask him to follow after other gods. And that takes a ton of wisdom and a ton of careful thinking. And I fear that many Christians are not willing to employ that type of nuanced, careful thinking. Like it's a ton easier to just write our own list of laws and then feel good about not violating them. It's a ton easier to just uh, pick up on the the... The, the sayings of my political party and just repeat those. Just repeat the things that I've heard before. But ultimately, we are called to live with wisdom. And on this side of the cross, our wisdom comes not just through the law of God and not just through the Proverbs of Solomon, but through Christ Himself who fulfilled the law for us and set us free. I love what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Greece. He, he wrote, And because of God who chose you, You are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, Jesus, when we trust Him for salvation, becomes wisdom to us from God. His life and His teaching becomes the standard by which we measure everything else in the world around us. He becomes the grid through which we process everything. Uh, Not the news, not social media opinions. Always only Jesus. He becomes the perfect plumb line for righteousness. He becomes the goal of our growth in godliness. And He becomes the only hope for freedom from slavery to sin in our lives. And so if we're going to respond to this post-Christian world wisely... It's going to mean that we develop a deep-rooted conviction that Jesus is the ultimate King who rescued us and that He is worthy of all of our lives. See, Jesus is all the wisdom that we will ever need to respond to the world around us. And so as we close, let me ask you, is Jesus your ultimate source of wisdom? Is His gospel the grid through which you evaluate everything else in your life? We're going to talk about that more next week. But I want you to consider that even right now. We cannot take our talking points from the world around us because it does not know God. Our wisdom must come from God. We need to allow the ultimate King 
to develop unshakable conviction in our hearts. Let's pray together that he would. Heavenly Father, you are the king who sits on the throne. You are the king who sees our sin. And in your holiness and righteousness, you must judge sin. You must deliver on the consequences of sin. And Father God, we see that you have delivered upon the ultimate consequences of sin in sending your Son to the cross for us in our place. We praise you, God, for that. And we, we, we ask that you would develop a, a deep-rooted faith and conviction that that gospel message is the only hope for our lives. Lord, out of that, I, I pray that you would show us how you want us to live. Show us how you want us to live in this anti-God world. Show us where, where our fears of things that are not you are controlling us instead of the fear of you. Instead of making you ultimate and, and seeing you as God, Lord. Reveal our fears to us. Even right now, in this moment, reveal our fears to us. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to see the ways that you have come through. The ways that you have upheld our steps of faith so far so that we can know that you will in the future. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out upon your church a supernatural wisdom that comes only through Christ. Lord, we need you for this. We need you. You are the only source of our conviction because you are the ultimate king. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.